the idea of millennial theology is really resonating with so many young folk my age that, that are saying no more, that are saying we don't want to hear hell and fire. And we need something that's really gonna help us change our lives and guide us to meet God, to meet Christ. And being oppressed is not the approach to saving our life. And I'm literally talking about life-saving theology for folk that are Christian and, and not Christian, but folk that are Christian and don't have anywhere to go. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Ash Love. Ash is the Director of Faith Organizing for the Freedom Center for Social Justice. She holds a Master's of Social Work from the University of Pittsburgh that focused on community organizing and social action. She's also the founder and principal consultant of Love Consulting Firm, a nonprofit focused on developing other nonprofits with a social justice platform. She's also a published poet, social justice blogger, and visual artist. In this episode, Ash and I discuss what formed her passion for faith and justice and her work in faith-based organizing in the South. We talk about LGBTQ activism in faith spaces, her experience of and working out what she calls millennial theology, and how she sees the theopoetic idea of divine inquisitiveness as a practice, art, and tool for shifting culture. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm excited uh, to have my guest with us today. Ash Love is here uh, as a faith and justice organizer and uh, activist and all-around uh, theopoetical person who brings a lot to the conversation. So welcome, Ash. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, well, first of all, I always like to invite our guests to just tell a little bit of their story, um, where you come from, what formed you to be the person you are today, and, and just tell us a little bit about your work in the world. Hmm. Um, by education, I'm a macro social worker, so I have a master's in social work. Um, and, and macro is a more community-based social work. Uh, so macro social workers, and it's also social work month, so shout out to all the social workers. But macro social work um, you know, provides uh, more interventions. While you might see a direct practice social work or a clinical social work, macro is um, community-wide um, interventions for uh, communities and, and social justice and advocacy and all the things that um, I engage myself in now. Um, but uh, I work for an organization called the Freedom Center for Social Justice. Uh, we do, and my direct work is a director for faith organizing. So I work directly in the faith communities at the intersections of justice um, and faith and the LGBTQ community. Wonderful. And you're doing this work in the South, um, in North Carolina specifically. Mm -hmm. And so tell me more about, you know, the intricacies and the details of, of what it means to be advocating for the LGBTQ community and doing this faith and justice work there in that, in that place in this time. Wow. So you can imagine that Southern organizing is a little different. Um, and when we talk about organizing in our organizing networks, we always want to make it clear that the Southern strategy um, has, to, has to have a different approach. So North Carolina is obviously a very conservative state, so having conversations around um, LGBTQ issues uh, is quite interesting and uncomfortable and challenging. Uh, so I like to say in our work, we go into the tough places, we go into the valleys, um, and it's hard and you have to have tough skin sometimes, um, but also give yourself space to be vulnerable when you do this work. Um, of course, we've had, in North Carolina, we've had to, to uh, fight legislation, uh, uh, HB2 being one of those things, um, and um, 
we have to North Carolina actually I, I just had a conversation with a, a lawyer friend of mine is in North Carolina is the only state that you can't get a um, protective order for same-sex partner uh, so a lot of people don't realize that and sometimes it's just an issue of language in the legislation uh, but it is again a very conservative state religiously very conservative even um, you can imagine going into religious spaces saying, hey, we, we, we want you to love all people. While that shouldn't seem like something that is unusual, an unusual ask, it, it can get tricky, uh, particularly in the South. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, before we talk a little bit more about that, that issue, specifically in the South, I'd love to hear, um, as you kind of are doing this work at the intersections of faith and justice, what led you to this place? I mean, what was it in your own story, your own journey that brought you to this, this place of not only being passionate about it, but wanting to get educated and to make this your career move? So I think there was, there was what brought me to the place of justice, right? And I always talk about my mother when I think about justice because she displayed the first form of justice and, and sort of radical love for me. I had a bully in uh, elementary school and uh, this bully would pull my hair and um, she would just pick on me and call me names. And what my mother found out later was um, this, this girl was essentially raising herself. Um, mm. Her mother was, was on drugs and, um, not doing very well. And so my mother invited this bully into our home and cooked her wow. dinner and we walked to school together and my mother cared for this girl. And so that was my first sort of introduction to radical love, which yeah. then me to, to sort of a radical justice, sort of a move to make sure that all people are sort of welcomed in the way that my mother welcomed this young girl. And it, and it taught me a very, very valuable lesson about um, uh, um, acceptance and um, looking past people's circumstances, really. Um, so I think, I think watching, watching my mom be as caring and loving as, and, um, as she was and my grandmother um, also, I think those those things led me to to this work. Wow, it's beautiful. So, I mean, I'm hearing in that story even this this idea, perhaps, that there's a connective thread of compassionate movement towards somebody that can transform a situation of injustice to one of hospitality and connection. And that, I mean, I, I to to learn that at such a young age and to observe that and to see the power of that, I, I can see how that set your feet on this path. So. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, and so, so as you are doing this work in the South with this uh, activism in terms of uh, advocating for the LGBTQ community, but also doing it in faith spaces and the difficulty that you've mentioned already with the conservatism and some of the, the religious views there. Um, in reading some of your work, one of the things that I, I saw you name was that you discuss how regressive religious views interrupt the advancement of justice work and they harm especially marginalized people. So can you talk about, in, as you're doing this work in faith spaces, what, what you've experienced um, in these regressive religious views and how they've been, been obstacles to, to inclusion um, to those who are marginalized? I think what I'm finding is that, you know, there are levels, when, when I encounter a regressive or conservative space um, in and again, you can imagine in the South that, you know, that's most of what we might encounter at the intersections of this work. I think I have to realize, and my co-conspirators, as I call them, have to realize that there are, are levels of um, transformation when, you know, when we're in a space that needs education, when we're in a space that needs um, interruption um, regarding their views. Um, we have to it's 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 a mechanism that we have to use so that we protect ourselves and and so that we're humbling ourselves um because it's hard to just go to a table um of of regressive views or 
conservatism and just say, we want you to accept LGBTQ people now. Um, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, this is a, this is a, a process. This work is a process. Um, and so we were very clear. Um, but, but there's also the radical nature of it is, is to um, be unapologetic and to be very clear that, you know, as activists and advocates for the LGBTQ community and faith spaces, that people are dying. Um, and this is a crisis. Um, and, and to be, yeah. um, and to be unwelcoming and to be, and to do harm, you know, to use uh, religious texts and holy writings as a form of harm to people is, is simply wrong. Uh, and so we, you know, we don't mince words when, when we're talking about the harm that's being done to the community. But as I said in the very beginning, we try to, we try to process these things on, um, on the levels that, that people approach the table. Because what we do know is that if people are at the table, then we've made impact. Yeah. So do you do that primarily around the table then? Is, is that a central place of meeting for having these dialogues? Or, or is there another way that you're you know, compassionately engaging this, this community? Uh, so there's some times that we do that around the table. Um, my, my, the executive director of the Freedom Center for Social Justice, Bishop Tanya Rawls, uh, she started having these, uh, what, she's call, what she called upper room conversations. Um, and so now we're starting to expand the upper room concept uh, where we were talking to primarily, primarily black pastors actually. Um, and we're expanding it um, to talk more about the liberation of theologies. Um, and we're expanding it to, to challenge, challenge folk on varying theologies. Um, so sometimes it's around the table and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's me raising my hand in a very conservative NAACP meeting, meeting saying, hey, you forgot to include LGBTQ people in this language um, on your list of demands or on your, um, on your um, purpose and your purpose statement. Sometimes it's very informal in that way, but it's, it's always making sure that there is a voice at the table. Yeah. I, and I, I love that phrase that you used, uh, the liberation of theologies, not necessarily solely liberation theology, which can become another construct to compete, you know, but, but the, this, this idea that there's a liberational nature to theology itself that is moving um, and hopefully moving in the way of love toward inclusion, toward, toward expansive uh, embrace of the whole of humanity. I think, wow, I mean, I, I come from, you know, a pretty conservative setting myself and in my upbringing and in my early life. And so I know how difficult those incremental moves are to liberate <laughs> your own theology. So for you, what, what is one of the ways that you talk about the, the Christ-driven nature of this, this sort of radical inclusivity that you're advocating for and, and not compromising on as you, as you speak um, to that community? How, how are you helping uh, use your faith, especially in that, that uh, Christ-driven nature, to do that? So this is reconciliation work. So when we come to the table, the, the one simple thing that we can bring is, is love right? We can all have, we, we all have ideas. When people say how, how do you do this work or how do we approach um, reconciling uh, sort of the, the reconciling regressive views or harm that's been done to, um, to the community, we can, we can at least agree on love. We can at least agree on, we may be able to agree on Christ's love even. I'm talking about like the woman at the whale type love, the, 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 the filial love, the agape love, the these varying forms of love, which is not a perfect love, but it is, it is something that we have in common at minimum, um, is the very foundation of the work. And it is, you may not like me. Um, <laughs> you may not like the work that I'm doing, um, but I'm asking you to, as you sit down to at least embody, um, as we talk about embody, is at least embody um, Christ's love, at least embody just generally um, 
an acceptance of the conversation first, um, of the, the move to, for a more just community first. Hmm. And is there a way that, um, that you frame that for, for religious folk? I mean, like, like in terms of, it's easy to say, hey, the, the, cent, the central tenet of Christianity is love, right? I mean, Jesus talks about it, does it, it's, that's a, the whole thing. But, mm-hmm. and I find that sometimes there's this phenomenon of what I call love and or love but theology, that, yes. that we make these definitions of love that we now hold to and there's people, and, and it becomes another tribal impulse, right? So people are in on our love, this kind of definition, some people are out. And right. so how do you theologize that? Or how do you frame that for people to say that, you know, love is love is love. And uh, that when somebody else is telling you that they're not experiencing love, that you need to listen. Like how, how do you frame that theologically so that the, the definitions don't get confused and, and that, that you mean something deeper? Yeah. So it may, it may not always start off as a love is love because that's, that sometimes it's not going to get there right away. Um, and, and there are these varying definitions of, of love. And in, in these concepts of love. Um, so first, what I ask for um, my communities or the communities that I work in or um, more conservative communities to do is to listen, um, to gauge in, in, engage in deep listening. Um, in, in deep listening, which is some, somewhat different from active listening. Um, you could be actively listening to me now and not deeply listening to me. Um, which means I'm absorbing what you are saying. Um, I am hearing it. It's going in my ears, through my brain, down to my heart, down to the rest of my body. I am feeling what you are saying. So approaching the conversation to start is, is asking your community or the communities that you're, you're trying to engage around deep listening. And how would you define deep listening as opposed to active listening or, or something else? So, so yeah, so I think it's, it's similarly to, to how I described it of, of active listening again is, you know, you're hearing what I'm saying right now. People are listening, actively listening to this podcast or they 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 will be actively listening to the podcast but when you take a moment when you when you value the moment of what you're hearing uh when you when you allow what you're hearing to enter into your body in a more spiritual way even um into into your body so that it can be transformative then that's deeply listening to me. Um, and that may not result in, my, my suggestion is not that the deep listening will result in affirmation. Um, deep listening may not result in to, result to agreement, but, but it will be the start of, I can, I can at least say that the beginning of a transformative conversation, a transformative approach um, to, to having conversation around radical inclusivity. Yeah. I mean, I'm hearing in that, that there's almost a, a contemplative work that mm. op- a deeper opening of yourself toward another, uh, you know, in, in such a way that, like you said, that there's, there's a deeper hearing so that you actually become connected to their experience, you know, or to their story in such a way that you can be transformed. And I think that like, in my observation of, of doing some of this work, not as, not as directly and as frequently as you, but is that people aren't always looking to be transformed. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily looking to have their perspective changed by another's experience, which also perpetuates the marginalization, you know, and, and the bias or whatever. And so uh, holding that space and inviting that deeper listening is, is such an art, I think. It's so difficult to do. Because it requires that the uh, the another says yes to mm-hmm. to being open to being transformed, and and I find in, in faith communities that's the that's a difficult play, you know. So, um, so another topic that that you had brought up that we might be able to discuss here um, 
is, I think, uh, sort of related tangentially to this, this idea of radical inclusivity um, um, in faith spaces. And it's this idea that millennials seem to be leaving faith spaces in droves for certain reasons. Uh, and before I get in, into, you know, getting too deep into what millennial theology could be, I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about it. And, and I know that this is one of your passions. So, so what is millennial theology and what are you seeing? What are you observing in real time as, as people are, are migrating away from, from faith spaces? Right. Uh, so millennial theology is, is speaking to an entire generation. Um, it's really an, an examination of, of the crisis in the church, um, which is a generation leaving, um, leaving the church, leaving the structure of the church, um, and, and finding God in, in varying ways, in different ways. Um, there is millennial theology is this examination of no church as church. Um, and I, I tell a story to people all the time that I, I didn't find Christ in church. Um, I found Christ in a closet going through depression. Um, and, and that was my first encounter. Um, and that's uh, yeah. love. Mm. And so, and so as we, as the church structure is, um, is um, unfortunately um, more systematic um, and more oppressive, we'll find that people will continue to leave um, and people will continue, but particularly, um, again, talking about a specific generation, um, will continue to seek other places of solace and safe space. And right now, um, largely, we're finding that that is not the church. The safe space is not the church. So the millennial theology is an examination of, um, of finding God outside of um, structural church systems. Hmm. So tell me more about what you mean when you say no church as church. Mm -hmm. um, so, so a lot of times we think of church as a building. And um, what, I, what I talk about quite often is you'll hear me say that church lives inside of us. Um, church, is our, church is our body. Um, church is our heart and mind. Church is spiritual, but it's not a building. It is not a structure, a physical structure. Um, and, so, and so sometimes that the consciousness raising, sort of a theological consciousness raising, and even spiritually, um, I, I think sometimes we have to get to a point where we move beyond the feel-good church on Sunday, and we actually move towards a spiritual becoming, a um, a sort of um, a, a sort a, tra a transformation, if you will. We're using that word um, that means from the inside out. And so I find God here um, in me. Uh, we have a we have a, a young preacher here at Mission House that talks about, that says that we're little gods, um, meaning that God lives in us. And so I think that that no church concept um, is about dismantling the idea of the church as a structure. Mm, I love that. I mean, it, it sounds very resonant with the New Testament idea of the body of Christ anyways. You know, this idea that we move from building to embodiment Mm -hmm. uh, and that not only are we these locations of, of the divine, um, and, you know, it reminds me of the, you know, the Eastern idea of theosis, you know, uh, also, but, but this, this idea that corporately, that collectively together, we are also a body that is, is churching. And uh, you use the phrase, I think, dismantling this sort of systemic or systematic oppression that is in certain forms of church. One of the ways that I've named that for our community is like using five C's of uh, that, that idea of church or that capital R religion is crusade, coerce, convert, conform, and colonize. Mm. And what we are trying to do is connection and contemplation, curiosity, creativity, and compassionate action, you know? Yeah, and that. so, so this, this movement I think is something that the younger generations are awakening to uh, probably already awakened to and are bringing almost a prophetic 
word, sometimes spoken, sometimes in, in leaving these, these systems. So, uh, so as you think about this idea of no church as church and dismantling this, this crusading impulse uh, of church, how are you seeing millennial theology start to take root in some interesting ways? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think it forces, um, and I'm using forces loosely, it forces um, the existing church system to, to say to ourselves, are we, are, are we trying to fill pews or are we trying to cultivate healthy disciples? Um, because what you can't ignore is that your churches are empty. Um, you can't ignore that. Um, and when there is a crisis, um, it's, it's the moral responsibility of the church to say, how can we fix this? Um, and, and not how can we fix it? Like, how can we get people through these doors? But again, how can we how can we be engage ourselves in the lives of people that that are struggling, that have possibly been oppressed by the church system? And what I had to realize is that I carry the weight of being queer in the church, but I also carry the weight of being a woman in the church. Um, and so, as I as I acknowledge my own intersections, um, then that made me realize that this is this is beyond. The, this is beyond me. The, the idea of millennial theology um, is really resonating with so many young folk um, my age that, that are saying um, no more, um, that are saying we don't, we don't want to um, hear hell and fire. Um, and, and we need something that's really going to going to help us change our lives and, 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 and guide us to meet God, to meet Christ. And being oppressed is not, is not the language, is not the approach to saving our life, mm. which is different from, um, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, literally, I'm literally talking about life-saving theology. I'm literally talking about a life-saving saving approach um, for, for, for folk that are Christian and, and not Christian, but folk that are Christian and don't have anywhere to go. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I love that, that phrasing that you use life-saving theology. I mean, that you, you'd think a tradition bent on salvation would understand that, you know, right. but, right. but, um, but the way that you're speaking that into our time, I think, is is so relevant. So, as you as you talk about life saving theology, and you're, you know, creating a community that's inviting that in people, is there a voice or a tone or um, that that you're finding is striking a chord in in your communicating, whether it's preaching or speaking or inviting people into this reality that that is starting to resonate with millennials that that's opening them up to this this other kind of spirituality art. Um, and I, I think, you know, very simply art and I, because, and I'm biased, I'm an artist, I'm a photographer when I'm not doing other things. Um, but I think that art speaks to our soul. Um, and, and, and mostly we connect to language, um, even if it's not visual art even if it's poetry, even if it's um, something else, um, I think that it is a way to culture shift uh, when we're talking about millennial theology and when we're talking about um, the transformation that needs to happen in church systems or the dismantling of the oppressive structure in the church system. Um, Because art is not a monolith. And, and neither are people, um, but, but I think with that connection, with the, the connection to art, I think it is a, a worth investing in as a form of a, a tool for engagement. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And I know that, that in, in sharing some of your, your bio with me and prep for this conversation today, that you had noted this uh, notion of divine inquisitiveness, which I thought was, again, beautifully phrased. But um, 
as you talk about that as a practice and an art, um, how, how do you, as, as an artist, uh, as a poet, see, um, see that directly influencing culture to shift? I mean, what, what are the ways in which art as a medium is inviting something new or different from, uh, from especially millennials that, that just the other kind of propositional communication or something like traditional church communication is, is no longer working, you know, with. Right. So divine inquisitiveness is, is sort of a concept that I started to own because I felt like I was learning more as I was asking questions. Um, and, and especially in um, the theology world. So I, in my work, I have the privilege of being around a, a lot of theologians. Um, and and I learned to be bold in my inquisitiveness um, because as they say, if you know better, you do better. Um, and so what I, what I owned was in, in faith communities and even in this, in this concept of millennial theology and in its connection to art is if we ask the questions that no one is asking, um, or if, if we're just bold, um, and if we're, if we're asking questions that, that maybe we weren't allowed to ask in Sunday school on church, you know, or, um, in Bible studies, um, then that's a boldness, um, and that's an art form. And, and from there, um, we, we develop things, um, from, from this bold approach, that, that are unique and that are inviting. And, and, it, and it could be in our programming um, that, we, that we do from a church level. It could be in our community organizing. It could be in, um, it, it could be in our, our visual work. Um, but divine inquisitiveness, um, I very much so connect to an art form as a way of becoming becoming open to ideas and and open to possibly becoming more welcoming a welcoming community rather yeah so yeah absolutely so i'm hearing more than just art as a medium in terms of creative expression but also that there's an artfulness to the the process of faith or the becoming of your spiritual journey and that that you know, this is this is a great conversation for a Theopoetics podcast because, you know, this is exactly what we what we like to talk about in terms of how aesthetics and embodiment are reframing uh, this religious conversation. So, so as you talk about that kind of inquisitiveness uh, that is inviting people to almost um, engage the their faith journey in a completely different modality than. Um, than a traditional, hey, believe these things and you kind of A plus B equals C. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what role did that inquisitiveness play in your own journey? And uh, where are you seeing young hearts and minds come alive with that gift of being open to in inquisitiveness um, in, in your own communities? Mm -hmm. um, my stepfather is a pastor. And so um, one of the things that I appreciate about growing up with a pastor is that he, he taught me so much um, and he allowed me to ask questions. And, um, and I wasn't afraid um, to ask questions. And so, and, I, and um, a part of my own journey, I guess that, that um, which is why I, I sort of, it, push and accept and, and take on this divine inquisitiveness is that I work with kids and young people are, um, I think my pastor says it like this, young people are the closest to God. Um, and so when, when I hear a young person ask a question, um, I want them to feel safe um, if they have questions, especially especially when you hear church systems say, I want young people in the church. I want young people in the church. Well, if you want young people in the church, you have to take on that they have questions and you have to take on 
um, that they need safe space um, to ask, why do I have to come to Sunday school? Or why do I have to, to wear this to church? Or why can't I say anything? Um, you, there has to be a voice there. Um, so I think in my own journey, um, and, and my parents will say that I was quite radical growing up. Um, my mother refers to me as a militant quite often. Um, I was that kid. Um, and then I started to realize that there wasn't space, even though I created sort of my own space as an activist to, to, to push myself there into, into this inquisitiveness because I wanted to grow. Um, I wanted to liberate myself um, in the mm. theological world um, and from an oppressive um, system, church system. So, so I think that my own journey involves um, just my upbringing and, and the opportunity to work with young people and, and giving them safe space and saying it's okay um, mm. if you have questions. It's okay if you, you don't want to do something. And it's okay if you, you want to be bold in your activism when, when, you, when you face an injustice. Uh, so I think, I think that's part of my own journey. And as I, as, I got, as, as I got to a point when I became the teacher, I wanted to make sure that that was a part of my work. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is such a gift. I, I think uh, I'm hearing something in the thread of our conversation already that uh, there's a synonymity here to, to liberation mm-hmm. and inquisitiveness and a sort of a theopoetical stance. I mean, those are this idea of movement or becoming is is really a part of that liberational and an inquisitive mode, you know. And what we're really talking about here, and I love that you you use this this phrase over and over again of saying, uh, basically, what you're doing is giving people permission. You know, <laughs> you're giving them a permission to go on their journey and uh, to ask those critical questions, and that 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 process is welcome. And so um, I think that that is such a gift that speaks to the fluidity of our time and how we need to prepare people for a world of movement, not and migration, not, you know, hunkering down and, and looking backwards. And, and, uh, and so I, I'm just grateful for that voice. Um, and uh, I, I love that, that you brought up children. I've got little kids myself and, and they are, they are inquisitive and they, they are theo, theo, little theologians, you know, in, in and of themselves. And, and there's no fear. No uh, fear. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of no fear, I think that it takes courage to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the ways I know that you like to do that is through poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm curious, you know, about that element in your life. And so the first thing I just want to know is, what do you love about poetry? <laughs> I love that I can say whatever I want to say um, with a rhythm. Um, that I, I love that about poetry. I love that I can be as vulnerable as I want to be. Um, even if I can't do it when I'm speaking to someone, um, I can write it down. And then it, it after, after rehearsing it, after looking at a poem, um, for a little while for me, then I develop a boldness to maybe even be able to say it in front of a few people. Uh, so I love, I love the, the freedom of poetry. Hmm. Well, I hear that in that too, that there's a process from creativity to embodiment, mm-hmm. you know, that you, you go through this, this poetical flow and then you, t- you think about bringing it into the world and, yeah. and sharing it. And so, uh, so in, in that way, I mean, what is it about poetry then that, that, that keeps you connected to speaking the truth? I mean, what, what is it about that, um, that medium of the poetic voice mm-hmm. that, that sort of invites you to, to say whatever you want in, in a way that maybe conversational communication or something doesn't necessarily invite? I remember when I was, um, I was first starting sort of my consciousness journey um, with my spirituality and, and reading the Bible and church. And um, my, my pastor, uh, Anthony Smith, who is a mentor and a brother, 
I, one day I said to myself as I was reading the Bible and I said to myself, the, the Bible is a huge book of poetry. And he's like, yeah, you can look at it that way. Um, and so I like read the whole book of Proverbs and um, I was like marveling in like metaphors and um, just beautiful language. Yeah. And um, so it made me feel more after, after that experience, um, it made me feel more developed in, in poetry as an art form and its relationship to, to my own developing theology and my own spirituality um, and even a contemplative practice for me, um, poetry as a contemplative practice. Um, so it's as poetry is part of my, my journey um, poetry is a part of my journey. Poetry is a part of my, my learning process. Um, and there is a process to it um, in terms of, you know, start to finish in terms of, you know, just the idea and, and then the embodiment and then the, 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 the boldness of being able to, to put this into communities, to share this um, with the world. Um, and there is, um, it's not no fear, right? Um, because there is fear, but it is um, it is a leap of faith. It is um, it is radical, and anything that's tied to something radical, I'm all for usually. Um, so, yeah, I mean that is one one beautiful word I think to describe poetry is it is a radical uh, expression for sure, and so. So as we've, we've journeyed through some of these ideas from everything from sort of faith-based and just organizing to uh, radical inclusivity in terms of, uh, you know, the LGBTQ community and this, this sort of uh, curious and inquisitive spirit and this, this uh, poetic methodology that you find to be opening you up. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was I, I know that you do some work with sort of nonprofit and organizational leadership and development and strategy. And so as we've talked about all of these things, I'm, I'm getting a better sense for, for who you are and what you're bringing into, uh, into the world. And so I'm curious how you infuse your perspective into this work at, with nonprofits and, and uh, organizational development and how are, how are you using that to, to strategize with them? It helps to, uh, to be, um, I, I usually in my in nonprofit work, it, it helps for me to actually be in faith organizing directly in the midst of faith organizing. That's my work. But I think in in previous roles in leadership and nonprofit, um, one of the things that I learned early is that I had to create space for myself to breathe. Um, and, and I had to find value in breathing, which is a part of processing, which is a part of critical thinking for me. Um, and so I used all of those tools to bring to the nonprofit table, um, both critical thinking and creativity. Uh, one of the things that um, um, I'll use to my advantage actually in this nonprofit field is, is creative thinking, is being able to think out, outside of the box and, and one of the other things that I use in this field that's an advantage to me is being a social worker, uh, is knowing how to work with people and talk to people at the very core of, um, and listen, right? Um, that's, you know, that's, that's a key value um, or core value of the work of social work is to be able to listen deeply, as we've talked about. So I think it's it's been a huge opportunity for me um, in connecting in, in the intersections of sort of this spiritual development and this contemplative development to to being able to take those tools and use it in the nonprofit world because we work with people. Um, that's the truth <laughs> about nonprofit and particularly nonprofits that are social justice oriented is we work with people and we work in advocacy. Um, and so what I learned about activism and advocacy is that we have to cover ourselves in this work and, 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 and cover ourselves because we need to be available. We need to be healthy and safe ourselves 
to be able to to go to the protest or to be able to go to the parent teacher conference with the parent because they need support or to be able to sit at the table with um, conservative white ministers in the South because it gets hard. Uh, so I think those are all some valuable tools for me to be able to work in a, in a nonprofit field um, and in leadership nonetheless. Yeah, I'm curious, You've, you used the term a few times of consciousness and, and the journey of consciousness and raising consciousness. And I know that, at least for me, that's one of the ways I think about this, this pastoral work, but also this faith organizing work and how we can shift, like, like you also said, on a macro level, the societal consciousness. So, so do you see even in your work with nonprofits, this, this idea that, that, that on some level, you're also trying to raise consciousness in, a, in an institution? Is that, is that something you see? And is it possible? Is something you see come to fruition ever? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, my, my own consciousness uh, raising, and, and honestly, that I didn't know that I was um, experiencing consciousness raising up until, I know it's been about four years. And so I, in the, in the beginning of what I'm calling consciousness raising, I just knew that I had a thirst for knowledge. Uh, so yeah. I just want to name it. Like there was this desire for knowledge. I wanted more. I wanted to learn more. Um, I just didn't want simple ideas. I wanted to think beyond the idea. I wanted the history um, behind mm. it. And, and, and so what I learned about my own consciousness journey um, is that crave is that crave for information mm. and and then I found that um, in the nonprofit world right uh, so there's my individual consciousness and then there's there's sort of that development of of a nonprofit consciousness mm. um, that um, that I had to that I had to realize um, that um, you know nonprofits want to grow too Hmm. Right. Um, so, so whether they want to grow in a way that is, I want to mobilize more people or they want to grow in a way that is, I want to fundraise more. Um, and I, I want people to invest in this work because I think this work is amazing. That's how nonprofits start. You have an idea, you think it's an amazing, you develop your organization and then you want people to invest in that work because it's great. Um, so, so what I think is, what I think happens is, um, for me, the realization that my own consciousness development was also similar to how we want to develop our own nonprofits, um, in terms of consciousness, um, with programming, even, uh, we start a program, we, um, sort of this cyclical process of program development is you start you start a program you start an idea you see if it works it doesn't work and then you try it or you don't try it again um so there's there's sort of this analysis in its own right um and i think i've done i had to do that individually and then i had to do that from a nonprofit leadership standpoint wow yeah uh what a task by the way <laughs> i mean that's that's not something that's easy to do uh but one of the things I'm hearing too in in your work is that you you're bringing what's what's being transformed in you to the to the larger world, you know. And so you mentioned even in your activist work that you have to sort of I think you use the phrase cover yourself, you know, um, to to prepare. So you know, as we wind some things down here, I'm curious if you have advice for others who are wanting to get into social organizing or justice work or act activism. Um, what are some ways that, that you can cover yourself to prepare for that work? And then also, what other encouragements would you have for people wanting to get into this? I think, I think one of the tools is silence. Uh, and the reason why I say one of the tools is silence is because we're moving so much. Um, the world is moving. We're on our cell phones all the time we're on our commute computers we're moving and so i think a deep silence is one of the tools that i use um, particularly um, in covering myself 
um, silence and, and meditation. And so in church world, when you say meditation, people start freaking out because they're, <laughs> they're like, yeah. you know, are you, I mean, is this a Buddhist practice or what? And right, right. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. In yeah. some ways. It, but, but, and it's also connection, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a way, it's a, it's, it's a true highway, I feel like, a connection to God. And so for me, that silence and that meditation gives me an opportunity to reconcile my own dealings or my own hurts or my own, what, what has impacted me throughout the day. In, in my social work career, what I had to realize about my body is that I'm really sensitive. And so my first, um, my, one of my first jobs as a social worker, um, I had to do an assessment uh, for, a, for a client. And when I walked away from that assessment, I had to go into the bathroom and cry. I had to purge because the stories that you hear, um, they, they can take on roles in your body and you don't even realize it. Hmm. And, and, so, and, and so that's part of that covering practice that I'm talking about, that sort of healing practice that I'm talking about is to really invest in healing. One of the things that um, I appreciate about elders in our community and the knowledge that they pass down or, or that I've heard more recently is take care of yourself, take care of your body. Uh, and so I really want to encourage people whenever I'm talking to activists um, or I'm sharing space with other organizers, it's, it's really encouraging people to, to find healing space while we're doing this work because we can take on so much. So yeah. Well, that's that's a wonderful invitation, I feel like, to to leave with today. Uh, but in that, I just wanted to thank you for coming on and have a conversation with me. And uh, I, I wanted to thank you for your inquisitiveness and for your truth and for your courage to uh, to work in this this way in the world. And I, it's an encouragement to me and, and I hope it will be and I know I know it will be to our listeners as well. So thank you for, for taking this time. Is there any way that we can keep up with your work and follow along with what you're up to? Uh, Facebook, just Ash Love. Um, you can follow me. And Instagram, I'm Love the Artist. And Twitter, I'm Love the Artist on Twitter also. So you can keep up with some of my work there and some of my musings, as I call it, or poetry. Great. Well, as, as she said, let's uh, head there and follow her work. And thanks again for being here and hope we can do it again soon. Thank you. Take care. No, thank you. Peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TD Burnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.